We're so thankful once again for all of our fathers here and at our Spanish Trail campus. Good morning to those of you that are there and happy Father's Day to each and every dad who's in the room at our campus across town uh, this morning. And a special welcome to all of our guests here today. If you're a first timer here at Hillcrest especially, we're thankful that you're here. We welcome you and uh, are praying for you this morning. Be sure to let us know that you're here. Visit one of our uh, Next Step centers uh, before you leave today. Give them a completed guest registration card. You can take home a gift this morning. We want to know that you're here, and we also want to know how we can pray for you or how we can be a better blessing uh, to your life. So be sure to let us know that today. Uh, The Bible is open this morning to the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. We are today and next Sunday finishing up Uh, This brief summertime study in uh, the book book of Jonah, one of the great prophets of the Bible and one of the most familiar stories of the Bible. And uh, really going to look kind of at a two-part message today, both today and next week will be similar themed messages. Um, But uh, today uh, we're going to focus on the first four or five verses of Jonah chapter 4. And as we do that, I want you to focus with me on uh, Walt Disney for a few minutes. We've got a lot of Disney fans in the house today. We're pretty close to Disney World, and a lot of our people go there regularly. Uh, Did you know that the first full-length color feature animation film came out way back in 1937 from the Walt Disney Company? You could go to the theater and watch it. Anybody remember what the first Disney full-length color animation feature was? That's right, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Very good. Uh, You know the story. 1937, it's hard to believe that, isn't it? Uh, The plot revolves around a heroine named Snow White who falls victim to a despicable witch who discovers that since Snow White has come around, that she's no longer the fairest of them all. And throughout the movie, Snow White finds herself, of course, surrounded by seven dwarfs, all of whom have very different personalities. Now, the thing about the seven dwarfs that I have found is you got those types in every church. In every church I've ever pastored, I've been a pastor of two churches. I've served on staff in another church. That makes three And I've been the member throughout my life of five churches, and every one of them have had all seven dwarfs in abundance in the church. Do you remember them? We'll put them on the screen. First of all, there's Happy. And everybody loves Happy. Happy is the person that's got the spiritual gift of encouragement, always cheerful, loves life, loves to be around people, always the encourager. This is the guy that, or the gal that finds the good in every person manages to take a negative and spin it. Pastors which God gave everybody the spiritual gift of encouragement because we always want everybody to be happy. Then secondly, there's bashful. Nice, thoughtful, but never really in the mix. Bashful's always on the periphery, always on the sideline, too shy, doesn't feel like he's got anything to contribute. So even though the bashful types are here, uh, they never really get too involved and what's going on among the people of God. And then thirdly, there's sneezy, always driveling about something. Can I have an amen? Sneezy types are always needing attention. They're always sick about something. High maintenance, we would call it. Can I have an amen? That's the sneezy types. 
And then the fourth dwarf is sleepy. And every church has its sleepy types. If you want to know who they are, just look around you in about 15 minutes and (laughs) you'll be able to identify the sleepies in the house. The fifth dwarf, of course, is Doc. Doc is the handyman. These are the people who can do just about anything and will do just about anything. These would be people who are gifted with the spiritual gift of the servant, the gift of service. If you need something done, just call on them. They're happy to do it. And they have an ability to get involved and fix just about anything that's broken. And then there's the sixth dwarf, and that, of course, is Dopey. Those are usually the pastors in the church, right? And every church has at least one, and uh, that's the guy that never quite gets it. And that leaves us with the final dwarf, which is this one, Grumpy. Yeah. Now, every time I've ever seen a grumpy displayed on a Snow White poster, that's what it looks like. He's always got his arms crossed. He's always got that bottom lip jutting out. Always got one foot stuck out in front of the other. That's his habitual pose. And the thing about grumpy is he just never gets happy. He is the antitype to the first dwarf, happy. Happy's always happy and always encouraging. Grumpy is just always mad about something. Now, having said all of that, let me ask you a question. Do you all know any grumpy disciples of Jesus Christ? Maybe I should ask it this way. Are you a grumpy disciple? And the thing about it is most of us know who they are. Isn't that right? Some of y'all got people popping into your head right now. Some of y'all are getting elbowed by the person sitting next to you right now. And the thing about it is, they're grumpy types in just about every church. Somebody asked a lady one time, showed up at work one time, all ticked off, apparently got up on the wrong side of the bed, which was a common occurrence for her. And her boss looked at her and said, let me ask you a question. Do you always wake up grumpy? And she looked back at him and said, no, I usually just let him sleep as long as he wants, to be honest with you. (laughs) Honestly, there are a few things more of an impediment to the gospel witness of Jesus Christ than grumpy disciples. Ought not be any such thing. Truth be told, there are. And here's the thing. This is the Jonah that we see in chapter four. If you want a picture of what a grumpy disciple looks like, we have a picture drawn for us by the Holy Spirit of God in the fourth chapter of Jonah. And ironically, Jonah's grumpiness comes on the heels of one of the greatest miracles in all the Bible. I've noticed that oftentimes as a pastor, that sometimes people get mad over all the wrong things. When we ought to be shouting with excitement, I've known some people to get mad about it. And that was Jonah. The great miracle that happened, of course, was the miracle of the turning of the Ninevites, the surrender of the Ninevites to faith in God. Jonah preached, the people listened, they turned in mass, beginning from the king all the way to the lowest peon, turned from sin, and they turned to God. And when they turned away from sin, the Bible says God turned away from judgments. One of the most powerful images of the mercy and the grace of God that you find anywhere in the Bible. And to our great surprise, 
We don't see Jonah clapping his hands. We don't see him dancing a two-step in the joy of the Lord as any rational preacher would do after that kind of a revival. We see Jonah instead responding with resentment. Let's read about it beginning this morning in the last verse of Jonah chapter 3 and then we'll work our way into chapter 4. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen? When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? (laughs) That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious God. I knew that you were merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Father, this morning we pray that as we look from this, your eternal, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, trustworthy word, that your spirit would speak to our hearts and fill us with the joy of the Lord. Through Christ we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Many of your English translations would ask the question that ends this section this way. Have you any right to be angry? Or is it right for you to be angry? This is one of the great questions of God from the Old Testament. I spent several weeks earlier this year looking with you at many of the questions that Jesus asked. But Jesus got his method of teaching from his own heavenly father because in the Old Testament of God, God asked some very sharp and pointed questions and this would be one of them. Do you do well to be angry? And uh, it's important, it's a good question because as you should know by now that emotion is God-given, and anger is a God-given emotion, but not all anger is good. There are some things that you ought to be angry about. If you're going to be like Christ, you need to get angry at the things Jesus gets angry about, but not all anger is good. Not all anger is healthy, and not all anger is right. Not all anger does you well. And so that's when anger turns into resentment. And what I'd like to do for a few minutes this morning is just visit with you as to why resentment is a problem for those who follow Jesus. It's a problem for two reasons that I'm going to point out from our text this morning. First of all, resentment is a problem because it destroys our peace. It destroys our peace and it robs us of the joy that rightfully should belong to us because we've been born again and have the Spirit of God living within us. Now, I have to admit, if Jim Locke were writing the book of Jonah, I would have put a period at the end of chapter 3 and closed the book. Can I have an amen? Let's just stop with the revival. Let's just all get happy and end on a positive note with all these Ninevite, Assyrian Ninevites coming 
to faith in God and turning from their wicked ways and mourning over the sin of their life. And that's the way I would have ended the book with this great scene of revival because I know everybody loves a happy ending. You do and I do too. And so often the question is raised, wouldn't it just have been better to end this book on a positive note? Anybody ever watch the series Downton Abbey on public television? Judy and I watched all six seasons of that together. We loved it. It's great storyline. And we just finished it watching it uh, on uh, one of the service uh, 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 programs that you can buy, uh, Amazon Prime or whatever it was. And we watched all six seasons together. It took us a long time to get through it, a little bit here and a little bit there. And there's a lot of drama through it. A lot of bad stuff happened during that period. And it was interesting. On the very final episode, the final episode of the final season, season number six, the thing about that was everything ended up coming up roses. Everybody ended up a winner in the last episode. There was the underbutler who everybody hated for six years. Most mean-spirited guy on the planet, and all of a sudden he discovers how wrong he's been, and everybody sees a turnaround in his attitude, and he ends up becoming the next butler uh, when the old butler is ready to move on, and now everybody loves him, and we couldn't figure that out. There are two sisters, Mary and Edith, who just at each other's throat for 5.9 years, they've been battling one another. And then all of a sudden, they're all lovey and huggy-duggy and everything's forgiven. And then Edith, who was jilted at the altar earlier, and then she found another guy and he ends up going to Germany to live for a while, only to be killed by the Nazis. And she's had one crisis after another. And she finally gets married in the last episode. And then there's cousin Isabel who finally decides to marry Lord Merton, even though he's informed her that he has a pernicious form of leukemia of some type, only to find out it's really not leukemia, it's only anemia, and everybody's cheering because now they can get married and live a long time together. I looked over at Judy at one point, about halfway into that, and I said, is there not anybody that's gonna die in this episode? I mean, everything was happy and everything was coming up roses. And that's the way that we want Jonah to end. But the story doesn't end with this major melody coming from the string section, but with these irritating, discordant notes that are being played in a minor key. You see, there is a reason I think that God lets the writer keep on writing. And that's because he knows the story's really not over. There's something in the way that Jonah responds to the mercy of God and to the grace of God that's not right. And God wants us to notice it so that it's not repeated in our own life. Rather than rejoicing with exceeding great joy, which is the way that it was described about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It's just one superlative built on top of another. But you don't see that in Jonah, even though we should see that in Jonah. But what we see coming from Jonah in response to this great revival is the same kind of superlative stacked on superlative just in the negative. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It's exactly the opposite of what happened when Christ's birth was announced. And we wonder, why? 
It should have been the same response. Man, people got saved by the score. I don't know why. Maybe the old racist is coming out in Jonah. He was a Jew. These were people that he'd hated, pagan idolaters, posed a grave threat to his people. And maybe in his mind, there was just something just didn't settle well with pagans cutting in on the grace of God. And we still act like that sometimes. Sometimes people in the house of God look at certain people doing certain things out in the world and they think, mistakenly, they don't deserve the grace of God. Neither do you. Neither do you. Neither do I. But it's easy to think that way. Maybe that's the way Jonah was thinking. Maybe he was concerned about his own reputation. I'm going to get a bad rap here. I'm going to go back home. I got to go back home. And these people are going to know I'm the one that went over to this place and preached the gospel to these people. They got saved and I'm going to get tagged, branded maybe even as a false prophet because I preached a message that judgment was coming and judgment didn't come. Maybe he was grumpy over the fact that for some time he'd preached repentance to his own people in Israel with very little success. Maybe he was dismissed by his own people. And his preaching was not responded to by his own people. Then he goes to these really bad people and they respond to his preaching. And these were people he didn't like and people that he didn't really want to be around. I don't know. You know what? I do believe that it probably in his mind came down to an issue of fairness. I'm pretty sure that Jonah thought that God was just totally unfair and totally unjust in doing what he does here to the Ninevites. And it just tore up his peace. He was grumpy. Whatever it was, whatever the reason for his grumpiness and his anger, we now understand that his repentance, the repentance that we heard in the belly of that fish, it was there in the belly of the fish. What we've learned now is it is not whole. It's not complete. There was something that was lacking in it. Jonah gets out of the fish and he does what God wants him to do, but he hadn't gotten to the point yet where he valued what God valued. He hadn't gotten to the point yet where he loved what God loved. He hadn't gotten to the point yet where he was able to see and understand what grace and mercy and active pity toward lost, desperate people was all about. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten mad at God because something happened in your life that you thought was unfair? Have you ever thought God was being unfair with you or unfair with someone in your family? Maybe there was a relationship that you thought ended prematurely and it was God's fault. Or maybe you lost a lot of money along the way. Or maybe you lost your business along the way and you thought it was God's fault. Or maybe you lost a job and it was God's fault. Or maybe you lost a loved one in ways that you thought were, were entirely too soon or unjust. Or maybe you lost your kids to rebellion and it was all God's fault. We all have these expectations of what we want God to do and what we want God to accomplish. and How we want God to act in certain situations. And when he doesn't do what we expect him to do, and when God doesn't act in ways that we think are fair or right or just, what happens is oftentimes we get angry with God. And many times I've known people, they've never gotten over it. There's no talking to them about it. They become negative, grumpy disciples. 
And there's no reason to understand why that type of attitude is very easy to identify and why oftentimes it's an attitude that nobody likes to be around. The thing about Jonah is that all throughout this story, you, when you think about it, remember all those seven dwarfs I, sh- I showed you? Jonah's every one of them at some time in the story, isn't he? All throughout the story, he's virtually all of them. At first, he's Doc. He's doing the will of God. But in Israel, in places where it's comfortable, he's serving the Lord when we first meet him. But then God comes along and he changes his plans and wants to send him to another field. And what does Jonah become? Bashful. He becomes bashful. He wants nothing to do with the will of God. So he runs from the will of God. And then while he's in the boat, what happens? He becomes sleepy, right? He goes down into the bowels of the ship and sleeps his way through the storm, wasting his life away. Here, by the time we get to chapter four, he becomes grumpy. And with what happens, of course, as we'll see next week, the grumpiness goes to dopey. And when you think about it, he's everything but happy. Everything but happy. And that's one of the great tragedies of the story. He misses the greatest benefit of being alive in God, and that is the joy of God. One of the great books that you should read before your journey is over is Spiritual Depression by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored the Westminster Chapel in London for many years. And he writes a book, the title is a little misleading because it's really a book about losing the joy of God. And he makes a great statement in the middle of that book. He said, when you lose your joy, it's because you're listening to the wrong voices. You're listening to either voices coming from around you or that fallen, sinful, broken voice that's coming from within you, you're not listening to the voice of the Spirit of God. And so that's one thing you can know about grumpy disciples who have lost the joy of Jesus. They're listening to the wrong voices. They're out of tune in terms of their abiding relationship with God. And the voices around them and the voices within them have caused them to cast their glance on the wrong thing and to misinterpret virtually everything that's happening around them. Think about it. I mean, Jonah missed the joy of the greatest revival maybe in all of history because he was listening to the wrong voices and he'd failed to guard his heart. And in his own selfishness, in his own self-centeredness, he comes to view God as radically unfair. So be very careful about rationalizing the relative fairness or unfairness of God. Let me ask you a question. Are you all still with me? Say amen. Do you want God to be fair with you? You better not because you're getting ready to die if you are because every one of us deserves the judgment of God. You don't want God to be fair with you. You don't want God to deal with you on the basis of fairness. You want God to deal with you on the basis of grace. And thank God he does. And that's what Jonah missed. He does not understand the grace of God. Listen, God doesn't owe you a thing. He doesn't owe me a thing. Owes me nothing, and I thank him every day that he deals with me on the basis of his grace. Something that I know that I don't deserve, and I'm pretty sure you don't either. So listen, let's learn to rejoice in the grace of God. Not only when he's merciful to us, but when he's merciful to others, 
even people we don't always like. But not only does resentment destroy your peace and rob you of your joy, it distorts your purpose, secondly. And what is my purpose? Well, we could talk a lot about what the purpose of a disciple is. But the reality is, as the Westminster Confession, I think, says it well, it's to enjoy God. To enjoy God, love him forever, to enjoy my life in God by following Jesus and obeying the commands of Christ. That's what my purpose in life is, to enjoy God and to enjoy life lived in the presence of God by following Jesus Christ as a disciple, obeying the commands of Christ. And one thing's for sure, you're gonna find that very difficult to do when you're eaten up with resentment, whether it's resentment with God or resentment toward anybody else. Some time ago, I read about a flight attendant who totally lost his composure. He was berated on the tarmac. The plane had not even taken off. And he was being berated by two female passengers who would not let it go, would not let up, and it was getting messy. It was a flight from Pittsburgh to New York on an economy carrier. He had all that he could take, and having all that he could take, he goes up to the front, he takes the microphone, and he begins to make an announcement. He grabs his favorite beverage from the galley, tells everybody on the plane that he served that airline for some 20 years as a flight attendant, but that he was done and he wanted everybody to know it. Then hanging up the phone, he turned and pressed the button, engaging the rubber slide that comes up in times of emergency and takes that favorite beverage and hits the slide and slid right into the unemployment line. Now, if you've ever worked in the people business, you know the frustration that comes sometimes when you can't always get along with people. Every pastor understands that, every manager, every supervisor that has to deal with employees, everybody knows what that is like. Somebody in every organization is usually sideways about something and there are always people that you're just never gonna please. We were staying at a hotel in Europe not long ago and when we checked out the desk clerk who was a very nice young lady, uh, asked me to be sure to go online and complete an online survey. Have y'all ever had that happen? Please go online and complete the online survey whenever we receive it via the email. And, and she looked at me and she said, now, when you do, can you please give us either nines or tens? She said, because the bosses get really mad if we get anything other than a nine or 10. And I looked at her and I said, well, I sure will. We've had a great stay here, but you do know that there are people that are gonna give you a five and a four just because they don't like your accent. You know that, don't you? There are people that are gonna rate you very low and it won't have anything to do with you. It'll have everything to do with them, but there'll be something. They're just mad at life and they need somebody to take it out on but one thing that I found is true, even though you may be mad at God and you may be mad at life, you're gonna follow after Jesus Christ. You cannot lose your composure and you cannot ever let your emotions get the best of you because that kind of anger always distorts and disrupts your purpose as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you another thing it's gonna do, it'll compromise your witness about Jesus. 
If you're going to live and act like that, you might as well not even open up your mouth to testify about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ because your attitude will undo the gospel. That pretty much describes Jonah's attitude here, except in his case, his anger is not with other people, it's with the Lord. And you can tell it in this prayer. He has this incredible resentment. Jonah's been totally distracted from his purpose in life. Look again, beginning in verse two. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? So he gives us a walking testimony about why he started to run in the first place. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. In other words, I knew you were a God that would respond if someone else repented and turned from their sin and turned to you. You wouldn't get mean-spirited with them like I wanted you to. That's just very interesting because what Jonah does here is he takes the three things that God is most known for by believers, his grace, his compassion, and his abundant love. He takes the three things that we most know God for and he uses them not in praise to God, but as a tirade against God. That's how you know somebody's messed up. Because he takes the three most wonderful things about God and uses it to express his anger to God, shaking his fist at him the whole time. This is old Jonah. This is Jonah BF before fish. He's concerned only with himself, only with his way. And when he doesn't get it, he goes grumpy, so grumpy. He doesn't even want to live anymore. He's ready to die. Verse three, therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Would you circle the phrase, better for me, please? Because that's, in large part, much of Jonah's problem, isn't it? Everything's about him. How many of you went through uh, the purpose-driven life when it was all the rage a few years ago. I took my church through it, it changed my whole church. We got revival. And the one takeaway from the purpose-driven life was the little phrase, it's not about me. And Jonah needed the purpose-driven life, didn't he? (laughs) Because he's still not gotten to the point where he doesn't realize that it's not all about him, it's about what brings God glory in this world and in this life. We don't live in this world and in this life to make a name for ourselves. We are here to magnify the great name of our holy God. And Jonah hadn't got it yet. And so because it's all about him and what he wanted didn't happen, the inevitable happens. He becomes resentful. He goes grumpy in the worst kind of way. He just wants to check out entirely. Now, this of course is not the first time this has happened to someone who has sought to follow the Lord. Elijah, that great prophet, wanted to die. So did Moses, right? He's trying to shepherd two million people. And there was a bunch of them that were grumpy all the time. And he was ready to die. He looks at God at one point in the 11th chapter of Numbers and he says, Lord, here's the thing. 
If I have found favor in your sight, if you're going to show me any grace, kill me here and now. That's exactly what he said. If I have found favor in your sight, kill me here and now because I cannot stand my own wretchedness. So Moses wanted to die. But you know what? Here's the thing. When you look at the types like Elijah and Moses, yes, they, they were fed up and yes, they wanted to die, but they, they were ready to just go straight to heaven. And, and you know why? Because they were discouraged that a lot of people heard their message, a lot of people responded to their leadership with mockery, with disdain, they were laughed at, they were criticized in every kind of direction. The people did not follow them, they turned away from them. And that's why they wanted to die. Jonah wanted to die because like 120,000 people got saved. And that's what makes his example so goofy, if I could use another Walt Disney character. Because people turned to the Lord in mass. Now, it doesn't take a theologian to understand that this is a spiritual problem, a deep-seated one. And that spiritual problem, which at its heart is self, is the root of his grumpiness. Jonah had lost his peace. He'd lost his purpose. And he'd lost his way. And let me just say again, no grumpy disciple ever attracts anybody to Jesus. This is why this is a big deal. So if you're here this morning and the joy is gone, you say, well, how do I know if the joy, well, have you stopped praying? If you're not praying, that's a pretty good sign. Are you sporadic in worship? Come only every so often to be with the people of God? Have you bailed out on your connect group? Have you stopped giving, contributing, to the work of the church? Have you stopped reading the Bible? Have you stopped worshiping the Lord because you're angry with God or you're angry with somebody else? Listen, if that's the case, let me just encourage you. Don't take that anger out on others. And don't hold it in. Don't nurse it like a junkie who can't get past the next day without rewinding the videotape and living the bitterness over and over and over again. No, what you do is you do what Jesus did and take all the injustice of this life and you lay it at the feet of Jesus. You give that anger to God. You don't become resentful with it. You take it to God. You're honest with God and then you leave the resentment and the bitterness and the frustration with God because life's too short and our mission is too critical for our gospel witness to be compromised by the lasting effects of grumpy discipleship. And so let the word of God speak to our hearts today and let's ask the spirit of God to take us on a journey that moves us from the grumpy disciple to the happy disciple for the glory of God in this life. This is God's word, and let all who agree with it say amen this morning. Amen.